So tonight we're continuing our series in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 entitled Love Unpacked and Unleashed. And we jump into verse 3 tonight, which reads like this. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body that I may boast, but have not love, I gain nothing. So this verse leads us again for the third week in a row. And actually, uh, next week, we'll move on to something different in starting to unpack the fruit of love or the fruits of love. But for the third week in a row, this leads us to consider the supremacy of love, the excellence of love, that it's far better and far greater than anything that we could ever imagine. Last, or the, the first time that we jumped in to this topic, we talked in general about love being the way beyond comparison, the way that was fully or truly human, the way to live. And then last week we saw how love in the heart, worked out in the heart, is in fact a greater blessing to us than participating or having or possessing one of these extraordinary spiritual gifts uh, that we talked about last week. And in all of this talk about the supremacy of love, my hope for Church of the Cross, for this community and for you, wherever you might be, is that by seeing and understanding the value of love and its greatness so clearly... Uh, that this will help us long for it in our lives and ultimately help us to begin to live out a life of love as a community of love before God and before our neighbors in this world. This is actually Jesus' call upon the church, his church, his people. And that's why we're focusing on this this fall as a community, on this topic of love, so that we grow. We don't just want to understand it better. We don't just want it to be cognitive. But we actually deeply want to grow in this Uh, reality of love, to be saturated in love as a community, and then to be spilling over that love into our neighbors and the world and the city around us. So that's our hope. Now in verse 3, where we are tonight, Paul actually shocks us a little bit. He speaks of two great actions of self-sacrifice. First he says, if I give away all that I have, and a literal rendering of this would be if I parcel out all of my property for food with the implication that that food is to be given over to feed the poor. This is an act of great sacrifice and of good for others. In fact, as we read in the gospel reading in Matthew chapter 19, this is actually what Jesus tells the rich young man to do, right? Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then you'll have treasure in heaven. So this is a very, very great thing, this action of giving over all that we have to the poor. Now imagine for just a moment with me, let's run this out a little bit, that you decide that you go home tonight and uh, that you wanted to embody this. So you basically catalog all of your belongings. For some of you, that would be hardly anything. And for others, it might be a lot. Uh, But you start putting everything out on the table, the computer, your books, um, your house, your bike, your car, And then you throw all of those things up on Craigslist tonight, or eBay, your choice. And uh, over the course of the next week, all of them sell. And you take all of the proceeds from that, and you take a plane from here across uh, to the the Middle East and, and go to northern Iraq, where a lot of the Syrian refugees are now flooding into from Syria, or have been for some time. And you give all of the money that you've collected from your stuff, and you give it over to the aid organizations that are serving the refugees in Syria. That's what Paul is talking about here. That kind of action in our lives. A great act, a self-sacrificial act. So that's the first thing that he mentions. Now the second act act is just as astonishing. Uh, We read, if I deliver up my body that I may boast. 
I want to deal just briefly. This is one of those New Testament textual issues. Some of you might be familiar with this verse as I deliver up my body uh, that I'm, uh, to the flames or that it might be burned. And there is a, a disagreement because both, both uh, two, two groups of early manuscripts have different words in this spot, whether it's that I might boast or that I might be burned. And um, I don't want to you know, bog us down in that, but I would say that I would interpret here boast as the right translation um, for a lot of reasons I won't bore you with at the moment, but would say actually that boasting is not, Paul's not saying boasting as in we would think of boasting, that, oh, you know, man, I'm great, look what I just did, but actually boasting is a kind of proper rejoicing in the reward that will come from faithfulness in the present day. Paul often talks about boasting in the work that he has done, not in a self-exalted kind of way, but in a proper sense of anticipation of the reward that God will give to those who serve him faithfully in this world. So that's, that's the, uh, the textual issue. The best commentary on what this means is from 1 Clement 55, chapter 55, verse 2. This is an early Christian letter written from the church in Rome to the church in Corinth, probably around 100 AD, probably from Paul's associate named Clement, who's mentioned in one of Paul's epistles. Because this verse in 1 Clement uses the same two verbs that are used in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3. And this is what it says. It says, we know many among ourselves who have given themselves up to bonds in order that they might ransom others. Many, too, have surrendered themselves to slavery, that with the price which they received for themselves, they might provide food for others. So this idea of giving yourself up, selling yourself so that you might provide for another, this is what is in mind in this giving up of our body. And this is a wonderful act as well. We probably can't think of anything that's as noble or seemingly altruistic as something like giving up your freedom so that somebody else could be free. So Paul mentions these two wonderful, great, laudable acts and then shocks the Corinthians by saying, look, if I do both of these kinds of things but have not love, so if you go out tonight and sell everything that you've got on Craigslist and give it away to the refugees in need but have not love, I gain nothing. I profit nothing. Now, of course, This can't mean nothing from every perspective. Certainly when we do actions like this, we profit in the eyes of others. If you were literally to do that scenario we've been talking about, who of us in this place would not be blown away at that act of generosity and self-sacrificial giving away of your stuff to those in need? We would be. The generous, think of of, uh, well-known rich people like Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, the generous who are well known for being generous with all of their wealth are always um, for us more appreciated, at least for those of us who don't know them and only know them by their acts. As Proverbs 19.6 says, everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. So there is something to be gained from these kinds of actions that we would be elevated in the eyes of those that are watching us do these kinds of things. And certainly also we would be elevated in the eyes and the perspective of those who receive the good gifts from us as well. So what does Paul mean when he says I gain nothing or I I profit nothing? He means that in the eyes of God, which is quite frankly the only opinion, the one opinion that really matters, that in the eyes of the Almighty God, that all the self-sacrificial actions in the world that we could perform with our lives, however great they might be, cannot make up for the lack of Christian love deep in the heart. As Galatians 5, 6 says, it's only faith working through love that counts for anything. 
Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that the actions themselves are not good in some way, nor that the recipients of those actions don't receive something that's actually quite good, but rather that the person performing these actions gains nothing from them in the eyes of God if love is missing in the heart. So that's, the, that's what this text is driving at here. And it's shocking. And Paul means for it to be shocking. So I want to unpack this just briefly and say, okay, first, let's make the point that it's possible to do these kinds of great self-sacrificial actions without love. And then second, let's look at why these actions of self-sacrifice without love can't make up for the lack of love in God's eyes. All right, so now I'm going to bring something up that all of you know something about, especially in a university town. Um, Patting the resume for just a moment. How many countless hours of community service have been done by high schoolers across the, the country just so that they can get into a great university? You're laughing because I hope it hits home in some ways. Just to help them get in. Most of you were probably holier than this in high school, but I assure you that I was not one of you. And while these hours would not be classified as great actions in the sense that we've just been talking about, it's conceivable that the same theme might pertain to some more significant and more sacrificial actions like Paul is talking about in the world. Let me give you an example from literature. Um, Charles Dickens' 1859 novel, The Tale of Two Cities. Uh, Forgive me if you've not read this, and if you want to just kind of plug your ears for now, you can. We're going to go right to the end. Um, At the end, Sidney Carton gives his life for Charles Darnay by substituting himself for Darnay in prison and masking up, disguising himself to appear as, as Charles. And then the next day, wakes up and goes to the guillotine and has his head chopped off. This appears to be a great act of love for Lucy, who is Charles's wife, whom Sidney was deeply in love with, but she wouldn't love him because he wasn't nearly the man or the nobleman or the gentleman that Charles was, and he knew it. And so he spent much of his life kind of living in the shadow of this other man who the woman that he loved ended up loving and marrying and having a child with. And so he comes to the end and and offers this great act of love. But when we read the final words of the book, which Dickens offers as a kind of prophetic, you know, these weren't actually said by, by Sidney before he goes to the guillotine, but he says, if we had heard his thoughts, this is what we would hear. Listen to what he says at the end. He says, I see that I hold a sanctuary in their hearts, that is, in Charles and Lucy's hearts, and in the hearts of their descendants generations hence. I see her, an old woman, weeping for me on the anniversary of this day. I see her and her husband, their course done, lying side by side in their last earthly bed, and I know that each was not more honored and held sacred in the other's soul than I was in the souls of both. I see that child who lay upon her bosom and who bore my name, a man winning his way up in that path of life which once was mine. I see him winning it so well that my name is made illustrious there by the light of his. Now, I don't want to deconstruct or psychoanalyze too much of a literary character, but there's enough in that to suggest that perhaps Sidney's act was not so much an act of deep love for this other man and the woman that he loved, but it was an act of some kind of self-centered justification of perpetuating his own memory in their minds. So, it suggests that in some ways, like Sidney Carton, we also could do great things from a place of deep need and not from a place of love. 
We can do great things, self-sacrificial things, either to prove something to ourselves about who we are. Sometimes we're our own harshest critic, aren't we? Always wondering, do we really have what it takes? Are we really anybody? And we can do them to silence the internal critic. We can do them also to prove to others around us that we really are somebody, in the sense the way Sidney went about this final great act of sacrificial death in his life. Or we might even perhaps do these kinds of great things to prove before the living God that we are somebody or something or worthy of his care and affection. But ultimately, these things are not love. These things don't come from love. Or alternatively, on the other side, if that's more of the weaker side of this, we might even say that we could do great things to show that we are great. You know, we don't live in the noblest and most heroic of cultures at the moment. Um, But if we did, and certainly there are pockets of that in our culture, you know, there might be a great kind of collective pressure to show just how, in fact, noble we are, that we can part with our worldly belongings to demonstrate the nobility of our spirit. We don't actually need these things, and I'll give them to those who do. Something like this is going on in the heart and the mind of the Pharisee in Luke 18 who proclaims his faithful actions loudly. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He's clearly impressed with himself, doing these things out of a sense of his own nobility, righteousness. Or even as the rich young man in Matthew 19, as we've read about tonight, who said that he had kept all of these commandments from his youth that Jesus asked him about. But these feats of goodness and of right action, however, are not arising from love, which is clear by the fact that Jesus's in Matthew 19 and God's in Luke 18 response to both of these men is one of rejection, not reception. So these actions actually profit them nothing. All right, so second then, let's look at why these kinds of actions can't actually replace the presence of love deep within the heart, both of God and of neighbor, this truly kind of Christian love that is the subject of our reflection over the next several months as a community. First thing I want to give you is God is in the business of making new and pure hearts. This is what he cares about most of all. God's in the heart work. Actions springing from something other than love bypass this reality about which God cares most in his children. So we read in 1 Samuel 16, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That means that God looks at us not as machines and evaluates us based on our output or only our external actions, but he looks at us as free, complex, rational, intelligent beings. And therefore, he looks upon our motives, upon our hearts. And it's not merely the actions or the external acts that please him. But it's the heart of love from which these actions arise. That is that sweet sound in his ear. Or that aroma in his nose. So great self-sacrificial actions, however great they are, cannot replace the love, love in the heart in God's sight. Because he looks for a new heart. And where the evidence is lacking, though everyone else be fooled, God is not pleased. And we gain nothing before him. Second reason, while it's true that with our neighbor, these great actions of justice and of mercy can have value outside of love, this is not the case with God. Let me explain what I mean. Our neighbors actually lack things. We all lack things. We're human. And to the degree that we meet their lack with any of our resources, our time, our treasure, or our talents, 
They experience uh, a sense of gratitude and thanks for what was offered. They actually experience, they get a value from what was offered to them. Regardless of whether our hearts are in it for ourselves or our hearts are in it because of love. Our neighbor's gain. But the same can't be said for God himself, can it? God is a perfect being who lacks nothing in himself. In his eternal fellowship of Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the words of Bart, he says, quote, He is not lonely in himself. He does not need the world. All richness of life, all fullness of action in a community exists in himself. Since he is the triune. He is movement and he is rest. God lacks nothing. So nothing that we give in terms of external actions adds anything to God or any value to who God is. All that he asks of us is love. Our love. And he doesn't actually even need this, but he desires it as a father desires the love and the affection of his children. And if that love is lacking in us, then no amount of of suffering for a good cause or participation in acts of justice can make up for that lack before him. So a third reason that this can't make up for love, these kinds of self-sacrificial actions, if not proceeding from love, are not actually offerings to God himself, but are rather offerings to an idol of our own making. That is a lesser, little g kind of God. We offer these acts of of service to someone, to some other being or object or end, be that ourselves or some picture of success or the world or something else. Our heart's ultimate devotion and worship, I would say, directs the gift of our service to that ultimate object or being. And nothing is given to God when we're ultimately worshiping self or success. So we shouldn't expect God then, from his perspective, the God of the universe who made us, who loves us, who longs for us to know his great love. To be pleased by this kind of idol worship in our lives, however closely our actions seem to be to the self-sacrifice of love. Offering our services to an idol, great as those services may appear to the rest of us, is not going to substitute for genuine love for God or for others deep in the human heart. So let me offer then some closing remarks in terms of conclusion and application. The first thing I want to ask you is, do we want to profit or to gain in the eyes of God? As we've seen, there's much to gain in the world's eyes from living a sacrificial life from not lacking, for lacking a heart of love, but obviously this can be the service of an idol. My question is simply, do you want to gain? As you think about your life, as you sit with where you are right now, wherever that might be, whatever questions you have, do you want to gain, to profit, in the eyes of the God who made you? We need to ask ourselves that kind of question. Who is it that we ultimately want to please? Is it this God who made us, who loves us, who's the most powerful, most wonderful uh, uh, being in the universe that we want to love, we want to know, we want to seek, we want to be around, we want to become like, we want to deal with as he is, not as we think he should be? So I would hope in one way that what we're looking at tonight together rekindles a desire in you to seek the delight and the praise of the one God who made heaven and earth by living a life of love. A radical life of love in your life. Though the world's praise is sweet, and sweet it is, it will soon be silenced 
And the only praise that matters will ring through all eternity. Is that the praise? Is that the profit? Is that the gain that you want to live for in your day-to-day life? Tonight when you go home. Tomorrow when you go to work. A second thing, as we look into our hearts tonight, we need to ask, have we known that the love of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in our lives, deep in our lives, in our hearts, such that we are then free to live all of life as a free and joyful response of love to him who loved us first. Because of his great love for us, we then become free. This is the logic. This is the the deep logic of the Christian life. Because of his great love for us, we then become free to live our lives and expend our lives in the service of others without holding back. But not out of a desire to have to be something, to prove something to somebody. But because of love. Love for God and love for our neighbors. Love for those who are in need. Love for the refugees in northern Iraq from Syria. And that love compels and moves and controls us once we've known, tasted, and experienced that love deep within the heart. Is, that, is this love deeply there in your heart? And if it is, it will begin to be seen in truth and in freedom and in integrity. That is a holistic approach to our lives, not holding back anything and not double-minded. And purity in actions that demonstrate this kind of love that we've experienced? Is that there deeply in your heart? And quickly on the heels of that, let me say third and next to last that I need to ask, is there any part of you tonight as we come here that's still seeking to build your bridge to God? That's still seeking in some way, I mean, did you do something in your past that you're ashamed of? maybe a month ago, maybe a year ago, maybe a few years ago, that you're still working tirelessly to to make amends for before God? Are you still thinking in some way that by, by your actions that you can somehow make up for this and that you can make yourself finally acceptable to the God of the of the universe? If that describes you even at all, let me just plead with you from this place tonight to be set free. Be set free from that deep sense that you have that you have to make it okay. No man and no woman can bear this burden in the heart. It actually nearly drove drove Luther mad until he discovered the free grace of God offered in the cross of Jesus. A grace which says there's no amount of work that you can do to build the bridge across. I've come across for you. I've come to rescue you. It's okay. You're forgiven. Now be at peace. Be at rest. Begin to live your life from that place of rest and peace. Not from a place of guilt and shame. And lastly, let me just say, granted that our hearts are complex. And that for many of us, mixed motives are a reality in life. I want to exhort us to, to, to pursue God humbly and faithfully. And to ask him to grant us a pure heart. God will not turn away an action offered with some kind of love toward him. Even a little bit of love. He's gracious. That's mixed in with all other kinds of worldly motives. Who of us can know the depth of our motives? Who of us can see our own hearts like God sees them? So hear that. That if there is love there, God will receive that. And thanks be to God for that. But having said that, I don't want us to rest content 
in that heart of mixed motives. But to say, we talk a lot at Church of the Cross about having a pure heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And we come, from, come at that a lot from Matthew 5, 8. But one of the great verses on this is out of Proverbs 20, verse 9. Which says, who can say, I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. The direct implication of that is not one of us can say that in our own strength, effort, and discipline. This gift of a motive of love, of a pure heart, of love that's springing up from from within, comes from God's grace working in our lives. From God's help for us, people who are stumbling and need his help. And it's only with his help that we shall grow in purity of motive to be a people who do our actions from a heart and a wellspring of love in us that's flowing out of us. Advancement along the way of love is not by the self-exaltation of the Pharisee proclaiming his righteousness before all, is it? It, But it's by the breast-beating tax collector who knows that he is in need and who begs as one in need for the mercy of God in his life. This dynamic is so central in the Christian life that we can never venture far from it as the people of God. We have the seasons in the Anglican tradition, in the Christian calendar of Advent and Lent that keep us coming back to this place. And we have our weekly confession here together before, as we, as we already did today, coming before God on our knees, begging his forgiveness. These are not peripheral things in the Christian life, but deeply at the center. Who can say, I've made my heart pure? Are you leaning tonight upon his mercy? Not just for his forgiveness, which we all desperately need, and he so freely gives, but also for that purification of your heart, that your life might be lived out of love to bring glory to him. Love is the way beyond comparison. Love is far greater than the extraordinary spiritual gifts. And love is far greater than acts of great self-sacrifice. Done from a motive that's anything but love. Love is everything. So I want to commend to you, pursue it. Let's pursue it together. Pursue it in our weekly conversations. Let's grow on this way. Walk on this way. Long for it. And next week we'll come back together and we'll begin a series of beginning to unpack the fruits of this kind of love, how we recognize it, how it works, that we might grow along it, grow in this greatest of Christian virtues, this virtue of all virtues that sums up the whole of the Christian life. Let's be a people of love who know deeply that we're loved. Amen? Amen. Amen.